Public Works Steampunk presents Jane Eyre. Written by Charlotte Bronte, with Steampunk Editions by R.A. Harding. Read by Danita Feldman. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2021 by R.A. Harding All rights reserved. This book or any portion thereof may not be reproduced or used in any manner whatsoever without the express written permission of the publisher, except for the use of brief quotations in a book review. To request permissions, contact author at publicworksteampunk at gmail.com. For Mom, who gifted me a love of reading and writing. Dear Reader, I write this to you from a great height, a view of the world that Charlotte Bronte was unable to achieve but dreamed about with her pen and paper. These first commercial flights to the moon in silken dirigibles have caused me to consider the world in which Charlotte wrote this novel. She did not know that many of these things would be possible, marvels such as automatons, floating manors, villages that could walk across the earth to find new places to work, and that each part of our earthly bodies are now interchangeable. I feel that she saw the beginnings of our Hindu-Christian religion, and understood that the gods in the heavens would join forces to save the souls and subsequent reincarnations of all those who are upon this earth. She was a woman of great insight and a sweeping imagination. It is in that spirit that I make these additions to this book. I hope that she would find it entertaining, but I am sure she would remind me that the only reason the book has been beloved long after her passing is due to the reader's. Should you find the changes I have made offensive, then I would heartily advise you to throw it out with the rubbish. Perchance you read it. May it bring you a new way to enjoy this novel in a world that is both familiar and fantastical. With best wishes, R.A. Harding. Chapter One, in which Jane reads a book and fights a cruel cousin. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering, indeed, in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning, like clockwork toy mice who have been wound up and set to roll about aimlessly. But since dinner, the cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so sombre and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks around the edge of the estate, especially on chilly afternoons, though the house floated above us with the engines humming a grey cloud of warmth. It was not enough to keep us from coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart saddened by the constant scolding of Bessie the nurse and humbled by constant comparisons to my cousins Eliza, John and Georgiana Reed. 
The said Eliza, John and Georgiana were now clustered round their mamma in the drawing room. She lay reclined on a sofa by the fireside, and with her darlings about her, for the time neither quarrelling nor crying, looked perfectly happy. Me she had barred from joining the group, saying she regretted to keep me at a distance, but that until she heard from Bessie and could see that I was honestly endeavouring to acquire a more sociable and childlike disposition, a more attractive and sprightly manner, she really must exclude me from privileges intended only for contented, happy little children. What does Bessie say I have done? I asked, as I nervously touched the winding gears beside my right eye. It was my habit, when in distress, to focus the glass eye in clockwork that gave me sight, as if by focusing my ocular mechanism I could also better understand her objections. Jane, I don't like questioners. Besides, there is something truly forbidding in a child with your appearance taking up her elders in that manner. Be seated somewhere and until you can speak pleasantly, remain silent. I left, knowing that I could never attain the more childlike disposition she desired, as I had neither the temperament nor ability to change my appearance. I looked as much like a child as any other, but for the delicate cogs and clockwork that gave me sight in my right eye, and the mechanisms visible on my face, which gave me, I suppose, a strange and forbidding aspect. A breakfast room adjoined the drawing room. I slipped in there. It contained a bookcase. I soon took a volume, taking care that it should be one with pictures. I climbed into the window seat, gathering up my feet. I sat cross-legged, and having drawn the red marine curtain in front of me, I was completely enclosed. Folds of scarlet drapery shut in my view to the breakfast room. To the left were the clear panes of glass, protecting but not separating me from the drear November day. At intervals, while turning over the pages of my book, I studied the aspect of that winter afternoon. Afar, it offered a pale blank of mist and cloud. Near, a scene of wet lawn and storm-beat shrub, with ceaseless rain sweeping away wildly. The automatons that tended the grounds stood motionless under the cover of the pavilion, but the rain that fell past them made them shimmer as if they were shivering in the pale light. I returned to my book, Bowick's History of British Birds. The content did not interest me, generally speaking, and yet there were certain introductory pages that, child as I was, I could not help but return to. The words in these introductory pages connected themselves with the succeeding small pictures and gave significance to the rock standing up alone in a sea of billow and spray, to the broken airship wilted and stranded on a desolate coast, to the cold and ghastly moon glancing through cloud at a wreck just sinking. Then came the image of the demon pinning down the thief's pack behind him. I passed over quickly. It was an object of terror, as was the black-horned thing seated aloof on a rock, surveying a distant crowd surrounding a gallows. Each picture told a story, mysterious often to my undeveloped understanding and imperfect feelings, yet profoundly interesting, as interesting as the tales Bessie sometimes told on winter evenings 
when she chanced to be in a good humour, and when, having brought her ironing table to the nursery hearth, she allowed us to sit about it, and while she sewed Mrs. Reed's lace frills and crimped her nightcap borders, fed our eager attention with her tales of love and adventure, taken from old fairy tales and other ballads. We revelled in her tales of the clockwork prince, the nine lives of the pirate cat, and the untethered kingdom of Ballyamon. With the book on my knee, I was then happy, happy at least in my way. I feared nothing but interruption, and that came too soon. The breakfast room door opened. Boo, Madam Mope! cried the whining and nasal voice of John Reed. Then he paused. As I was enclosed in the window seat, he found the room apparently empty. Where the dickens is she? he continued. Lizzie, Georgie, Jane is not here. Tell Mamma she has run out into the rain, the bad animal. It is well I drew the curtain, thought I, and I wished fervently he might not discover my hiding place. Nor would John have found it out himself. He was not quick either of vision or conception. But Eliza just put her head in at the door and said at once, She's in the window seat, to be sure. And I scrambled out immediately, for I trembled at the idea of being dragged forth by John. What do you want? I asked with awkward diffidence. Say, what do you want, Master Reed? was the answer. I want you to come here. And seating himself in an armchair, he gestured that I was to approach and stand before him. John Reed was a schoolboy of fourteen years old, four years older than I. He was large and stout for his age, with a dingy and unwholesome skin, heavy limbs and large extremities. He gorged himself habitually at table, which made him fat, and gave him a dim eye and flabby cheeks. He ought now to have been at school, but his mamma had taken him home for a month or two on account of his delicate health. Mr. Miles, the schoolmaster, affirmed that he would do very well if he had fewer cakes and sweets sent from home. But Mrs. Reed's heart turned from an opinion so harsh and inclined rather that John's sallowness was owing to over-application and perhaps to pining after home. John had not much affection for his mother and sisters and an antipathy to me. He bullied and punished me, not two or three times in the week, nor once or twice in the day, but continually. Every nerve I had feared him, and it felt that my bones shrank when he came near. There were moments when I was overwhelmed by the terror he inspired, because I had no defence whatever against either his words or his blows. The servants did not like to offend their young master by siding with me against him, and Mrs. Reed was blind and deaf on the subject. She never saw him strike or heard him abuse me, though he did both occasionally in her very presence. More frequently, however, behind her back. Habitually obedient to John, I came up to his chair. He spent some three minutes in thrusting out his tongue at me as far as he could without damaging the roots. I knew he would soon strike. And while dreading the blow, I mused on the disgusting and ugly appearance of him who would presently deal it. I did not need to adjust my ocular mechanism to notice the pallid, stretched skin and irregular patches that showed on his face from the simple effort of walking from one room to the next. 
I thought to myself that he did not need to try to make disgusting faces when his normal look was always so disagreeable. I wonder if you read that notion in my face. For all at once, without speaking, he struck suddenly and strongly with his right hand across my face. I tottered, my eye losing its focus for a moment, hearing the tick of the gears frantically clicking in my head, trying to focus my vision, and on regaining my equilibrium, took a step or two away from his chair. That is for your impudence in talking back to Mamma," said he, and for your sneaking way behind curtains, and for the look you had in your eyes a minute ago, you cyclops. Accustomed to John Reed's abuse, I never had a thought of replying to it. My thought was only how to endure the second blow which would certainly follow the insult. What were you doing behind the curtain? he asked. I was reading. Show the book. I returned to the window and fetched it thence. You have no business to take our books. You are a dependent, Mamma says. You have no money. Your father left you none. You ought to beg and not to live here with gentlemen's children like us and eat the same meals we do and wear clothes at our mamma's expense. He paused to catch his breath and a dark idea showed on his features. Now I'll teach you to rummage my bookshelves, for they are mine. All the house belongs to me or will in a few years. Go and stand by the door, out of the way of the mirror and the windows. I did so, not at first aware of his intention, but when I saw him lift the book and stand to hurl it, I instinctively flung myself aside with a cry of alarm. Not soon enough, however, the book was flung, it hit me, and I fell, striking my head against the door and cutting it. The cut bled, the pain was sharp. Again I was dizzy and my hand flew to the gears at the side of my face to still the spinning and clicking gears that had been thrown out of equilibrium by the jolt against the ground. I felt blood on my hand, and as my terror passed its peak, swiftly other feelings replaced them. Wicked and cruel boy, I said. You are like a murderer. You are like a wicked slaver. You are like the Roman emperors. I had read much of the classic rulers, had formed opinions, and indeed drawn parallels between their unjust ways and John, which I had never before declared aloud. What? What? he cried. Did she say that to me? Did you hear her, Eliza and Georgiana? Won't I tell Mamma? But first, he ran headlong at me. I felt him grasp my hair and my shoulder, but I was in a desperate and angry state. I really saw in him a tyrant, a murderer. I felt a drop or two of blood from my head trickle down my neck. My eye was still spinning, and I was aware of my somewhat sharp suffering. These sensations for a moment overrode my habitual fear of him, and I met him with all anger in responding blows. I don't very well know what I did with my hands, but he called me rat, rat, and bellowed out in fearful surprise. He did not suffer at my hands long, for Eliza and Georgiana had run for Mrs. Reed, who had gone upstairs. She now came upon the scene, followed by Bessie and her maid, Abbott. We were parted. I heard the words, Dear, dear, what a fury to fly at Master John. Did you ever see anybody in such a picture of passion? Then Mrs. Reed commanded, Take her away to the red room and lock her in there. Four hands were immediately laid upon me and I was born upstairs. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Public Works Steampunk Presents Jane Eyre. This book is copyright 2021 by R.A. Harding. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. The music box intro and outro was recorded by Nicholas Drewski. If you would like to read the author's notes on the chapter or order the book, please go to publicworksteampunk.com. And while you're there, join the mailing list to get a one-of-a-kind infographic about the book and more. Farewell for the present. <laughs>